So welcome. So Inez uh, described investigation yesterday, uh, Dhamma Vichaya, sometimes rendered as uh, investigation of the law, investigation of the law. And um, if you don't know the rules of the game, uh, very unlikely to win. If you don't know that in basketball, you have to dribble or you get called for a traveling violation, tough to win. If you don't know samsara, very unlikely to be deeply happy. And so we have to investigate the, this realm, this human realm and um, this isn't about uh, thinking our way into insight. Um, we, we try that, um, but, but we're not trying to think our way into insight. We actually need data. Yeah, we need data. We have to collect data. And... The data, I would say, is primarily gathered by awareness, and especially awareness of our body. And as we gather data, we, it may culminate in insights that we can articulate, you know, to say things change, for example. It may, may culminate in something we can say, words we can say, a view we can take, but we're not thinking our way into it any more than, you know, I'm looking at my bicep and thinking my way into strength. Yeah. You lift the weight. In the end, this path is um, all about getting what we want. And we think we want pleasure, but um, we actually want uh, satisfaction. And uh, what we actually want was what the, the Buddha described, the cessation of craving. And so Shantideva said, um, we, we hate suffering, but love its causes. And so our practice is to investigate how, investigate, as, as Inez uh, laid out, investigate how suffering arises, how it ceases. This is the maybe the crucial project of uh, Vipassana. 
And in this investigation, one of the vital arenas is the relation between bodily affect and thought. Now, I'm using the word uh, affect here to mean something much, much broader than just emotion. Um, and so emotion narrowly associated with happiness or sadness or fear, etc. But affect is broader. It's broader. And um, I associate it with the this kind of very primal urge to fix something, to tinker with samsara. This kind of energy of the body and this urge to do, like as if each little burst of affect is a commandment to do something, to hold something, to keep something. The group of, of scholars, um, uh, affective scholars, um, they write, uh, we, we continuously evaluate events around us and inside us, and our central and peripheral nervous systems allow the emergence of expressions, physiological arousal, bodily reactions, action tendencies and felt subjective experiences. Affective processes are typically understood to relate to the notion of pleasure and displeasure or valence, to not necessarily be consciously felt and to mobilize the organism to deal with events that may be important to that organism. Expressions, arousal, reactions, action tendencies, subjective experience. This is a broad category of experience, but it's really a really important avenue for investigation. Because we are in a kind of um, continuous mode of evaluation and non-judgmental awareness. We say, oh, mindfulness, non-judgmental awareness or something. We say, I say the word equanimity all the time, casually. But non-judgmental awareness is, is very foreign to our system. It's very foreign to our system in, in, in an important way. The world is, is impinging on us. That, that's one definition of samsara, this, this realm of existence. The world is impinging on us. Some, we're always being stimulated, always being touched by the world, touched by sights, by sounds, by thoughts. And stimulation is the stimulation of affect. Experience largely becomes meaningful because of feeling, because of affect. 
This is where the stakes are of a human life. Mm-hmm. And no, no feeling, no feeling, no affect, really. Um, no feeling, no feeling. Um, hang on one second. Um, no feeling, no meaning. Yeah. No feeling, no meaning. Like we, we, in the sense that we don't build stories out of neutrality. That's not where the stories of our mind come from. Neutral feeling, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, it's, it's, um, it's often missed because it doesn't call out to us, but that, that itself is kind of significant. Yeah, that itself is significant. When when there are like no alarm bells going off, there's much less need to narrate the moment. Does that make sense? When there's like there's just let's just say it's pervasively neutral. What kind of stories would we build about the world, about self, about the moment? Some of our practice is is just um, contacting neutrality, contacting neutrality, just, okay, what in this field is neutral? Maybe for some people, the breathing is pretty close to neutral, or the hands, or the soles of the feet, or the soundscape or the darkness behind the closed eyes. And um, it's um, meaningful to, to contact neutrality um, and see that when, when it's all very neutral, the urge to talk about our experience, to make something of our life, is dramatically diminished. But then we get pulled into valence, to the positive and negative affect of feeling. And we start building again. We start making meaning So what is the relationship between bodily affect and thought? The theme, thought and freedom. What's the relation between affect and and thought? This is, um, I feel like, a a lifetime of of exploration. And um, we could ask the question, is is the arrow from thought to feeling or feeling to thought? Yeah. And no doubt it's way more complicated than that. But for now, let's just say both. Yeah. Thought to feeling, feeling to thought. 
cognitive therapy, you know, cognitive therapy says that maladaptive thoughts about self and world and future lead to emotional pain, to symptoms. Maladaptive thoughts about self, world, future. And a situation, the model is a situation elicits often automatic thoughts, thoughts we might not even discern, but they're so habituated, automatic thoughts, which then elicit emotional and behavioral responses, right? And so from this approach, cognitive therapy, maladaptive thoughts are explored and challenged and the, the self and the world and everything is reappraised. So it's like a reconstrued. We make new meanings. We start to drop some of the distortions of like major cognitive errors of catastrophizing. Yeah of overgeneralizing, taking one thing, overgeneralizing, of black-white thinking, di- dichotomous thinking. Yeah. And so um, the process is, is, um, yeah, is, is developing more adaptive schemas and frameworks, understandings. And the Dharma... We don't talk about it often in this way, but the Dharma is in important ways a cognitive therapy. Yeah. Like in important ways, it's a cognitive therapy. And sometimes when I think, you know, you see kind of clinical research of, a, of an eight week mindfulness based stress reduction intervention, and there are positive results from it. Mindfulness is helpful. And, um, and I'm always kind of struck by that because, um, yeah, when I think about my attention at day one and my attention after week eight of my Dharma practice, it was unimpressive and unimpressive. Yeah. But there was probably a lot of cognitive change happening a lot of new ideas happening. Yeah. And Buddhist psychology, of course, begins with wise view. It begins with wise view. Understanding. With with unwise view, with wrong view, it said that wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, wrong concept, wrong everything follows wrong view. Right? So we're invited in to set up wise view. This is a cognitive intervention. And it's important because we have a lot of maladaptive thoughts about happiness. Just a lot of weird ideas about what's going to do the trick. My... um, eight-year-old nephew um, has um, sort of meandered through various obsessions over the course of uh, his childhood. And um, it started with um, 
predatory animals. Uh, I know a lot about cougars and bears, the different bear species, where we need to weave, be careful. Berkeley is all right, but baseball statistics was the phase and uh, fast cars was a phase. And, um, yeah, he's a kid, but I was like, okay, I, you know, we're talking too much about fast cars. And I just decided to, uh, to try to give a lesson on the unsatisfactoriness of all phenomena. And, um, and I told him the only, the only Ferrari owner I know is extremely unhappy. And, uh, he, uh, he asked me though, he said, yeah, but what kind of Ferrari do they have? Perhaps implying that a V8 is not sufficient for well-being, but the classic V12 Ferrari that might, that might end all seeking. Yeah. Right. So we look, what do we, where do we look for refuge? Where do we seek our happiness? And the Dharma introduces a lot of views, a lot of views. Yeah. Um, it invites us to consider a lot, a lot of views about well-being, about wholesomeness and unwholesomeness, about suffering and its redemption about the centrality of ethical conduct, about how to divide up the pie of experience, you know, not into good and evil, but into, say, the aggregates, right? Or we divide it up into the satipatthanas, yeah? These are views that we take, meanings that we make, and... Um, and over the course of practice, we come to be, to be more conscious of all the views we do have, some of which are like really obvious and some of which just fly beneath the radar and, um, and can be very subtle, but profound, you know, subtle is significant, uh, Shinzen Young would say. And so part of practice is detecting all that we believe. And some of our beliefs are just these wild, absurd ideas that we have about ourselves. And if we said them out loud, they'd sound ridiculous. If we actually had to say them out loud, I should be perfect. Is that actually, yeah, oh, that's actually in there somewhere. Yeah. And so some of our practice is just unpacking all of the layers, yeah, the assumptions. And, um, and some of practice is this kind of cognitive dimension of the Dharma is about normalizing the human condition. The first noble truth that there is dukkha. The first noble truth is like the most normalizing thing that's ever been said. 
and we develop wise views, views that are compatible with wholesomeness, with pleasant affect, with thriving, with non-harm. And so the thought leads to the feeling. But then crucially, it goes the other way. Body to thought. Affect to thought. So if I unknowingly took a pill that... um, was the opposite of um, Valium or something, the opposite of an anti-anxiety that actually produced anxiety, what would happen to my view? Yeah. If I unknowingly took that, my world would start to cave in. Yeah. I would start to have a lot of doubt, doubt about maybe everything, who knows? It's Dharma stuff, I don't know about that. All the people I love, they're flawed. Something's wrong, yeah. And then the drug would wear off, yeah. And what are we to make of the house of cards that would be that I would have constructed as the drug had its effect on me. Or we we can see this in a less dramatic way with the kind of gradual onset of uh, the rosiness of caffeine if you're a user. Um, And the caffeine kind of is sort of like the onset as it starts to do its beautiful job. And uh, all of a sudden, there's just like a little rosy, yeah? And so we say affect, affect is not self. It's not a commentary on who you are, feels like it is. It feels like my joy and my sadness, my love and my grief are a testament about who I am. But affect is not self. It's a million causes and conditions converging. And our causal maps, the way we understand affect, the way we make meaning of it, the way we understand our lives, our causal maps, they're too, they're too simplistic. They're too simple. It's so many things, so many things, so many factors. And that sense of the first cause, this one thing that did this, it's more complex. The stories we tell about why we are who we are, they're too simple. Why we feel the way we do, 
what we want. They're too simple. And so our investigation, we want to see how we build stories out of affect. And this is happening all the time. You know, thinking is usually considered like described as the a cause of dukkha. That's thought to feeling. So we train in wise view, but it's also the effect of dukkha, thinking as the effect of dukkha, the effect of suffering. If there were peace and security and deep safety, we would not feel the same need to talk about experience, the same compulsion to conceptualize and freeze the world. But um, because we're small creatures amidst unimaginably vast forces contending with the you know, almost unimaginable vastness of anicca, of uncertainty, unreliability. We're naturally preoccupied with arranging our future and security. And as a consequence, to arrange our security, we have to differentiate and conceptualize and make meaning and categorize. And all of that meaning-making at some level is a function of fear. Function of fear. Right? And maybe you can even get some intuitive sense of like, if there were no fear, if there were no threat, if there were utter safety, security, protection, refuge. How, what would we need to think about exactly? Some brain, a little bit of a a brain kind of science theoretical framework. Um, it's imperative. Uh, the imperative is to maintain a boundary between oneself and the world. In order to avoid the dissolution of boundaries, what the organism does is make predictions across many time scales to produce survival actions that minimize the tendency towards entropy. The organism's survival depends on high-fidelity predictions. The computationally efficient solution to this problem is for the brain to prune its models using prediction errors. By processing the difference between predictions and sensory input, the organism can indirectly quantify the accuracy of its predictions and improve the models that generated them. 
an organism that does not aim to minimize prediction errors over time would not survive for long. This, this basic predicament of um, being fragile amidst profoundly um, yeah, potent forces and this need to actually um, to model self and world to make predictions moment by moment, what is going to happen next. To look, to be conceptualizing such that we're, 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 we're trying never to be startled, to be surprised by what comes next. You can feel that on the cushion a certain kind of vigilance that is never far from the surface. Tracking, making meaning, conceptualizing, leaning forward into the next moment. All our kind of desperate attempt to manage anicca And um, as a consequence, we talk to ourselves all the time. We're coming to conclusions and staying oriented and making meaning all the time. And so sometimes I'll give the meditation instruction just not not stop thinking, but stop coming to conclusions. Like don't land anywhere. Don't land. We're landing on conclusions all the time. I want this. And then the sort of chain stops. Okay, that's the conclusion. I want, I don't want this. That's the conclusion. takes a lot of trust and a sense of safety to um, uh, to to not come to conclusions to begin to relinquish this kind of compulsion to make meaning and in this it's like so much of our data is coming our body is giving us this data this affect this kind of surveillance of threat and opportunity and then our mind is compelled to make sense of it yeah but often the way we make sense of it the way we interpret and make meaning the implications we draw, the conclusions we draw, it compounds the bad feeling, a lot of bad feelings, or it compounds delusion. And so we investigate what is happening and what meaning am I making 
in the openness of awareness, we're investigating body like this, affect like this, narrative like this, images like this. There's a um, a clinical model of pain that suggests like um, pain is the prediction of bodily harm. Pain is the prediction of bodily harm. And um, maybe, maybe following along, like maybe we say shame is the prediction of social rejection or grief is the prediction of isolation, alienation. But we want to look, is it? What do we make of this prediction? This little ache in my neck, it goes off as a kind of alarm bell, right? But is it, is it actually an accurate prediction of bodily harm? Rarely. Sometimes on retreat, the invitation is we start to see um, the kind of house of cards that we built, the house of cards of thought that's like, like exhaust coming off the engine of affect. And we build, build, and build. Oh my God, this retreat. Oh my God, this. And sometimes positive, sometimes negative. And then the card, the house of cards crumbles. And it's important to see that, see the kind of insubstantiality of the, the narratives that we often build. And then we become, um, we sometimes it's like we, we have to just become attuned to negative affect, to unpleasantness, and just ride it out without story, without the stories that try to understand where it came from, where it's going, what has to happen, how to fix, how to, what's, you know, all the urgency that's announced by the affect. And so we just bear with it. It, it feels like problems find me, but sometimes it's just my kilesas finding an, its object. Yeah. It feels like the problem, like they're just besieging me, but it's more like a kind of a, the negative affect has to find a placeholder. Greed has to find a placeholder. Aversion has to find a placeholder. 
And so there's a certain kind of vow sometimes. I do not want to build this house of bad story, bad feeling, bad meaning. And instead, we just appreciate this is unpleasantness. Unpleasantness is like this. Sajin Sumedho said, unpleasantness is like this. We comprehend dukkha. And if you comprehend it, there is some meaning being made, but not much, not much. But of course, we have to live in the realm of meaning too. And the Dharma, as I've said, is a bunch of views and meanings and happiness thriving is a bunch of views and meanings too. And so how, how, do, we, how do we use um, the data from our body to make wise meanings? There's um, um, something called like a digital to analog converter, DAC, DAC for short. And um, it converts a digital signal to an analog signal. It's in any CD player, MP3 player. And it's really decoding one form of data and expressing it in another. And um, you can get, you know, I think audio files or sound engineers, or, you know, is like you can get a DAC itself that's tens of thousands of dollars. It's not even the thing that's playing the music, right? Incredible fidelity, right? And um, I, I, thought of that as I was considering this talk, um, that that practice, dharma practice, helps us translate the signal of affect with more fidelity and wisdom into thought and action. Zajan Sajito, um, if you want to guard the Dhamma, protect the Dhamma, and love the Dhamma, feel it in your body. The Dhamma is then not the ideas or words or expositions. It's the immediate flexion of joy and love in the presence of goodness and of disorientation and sickness that you feel on witnessing brutality and corruption. We uh, discover that the, the, the Dhamma in our body and we translate the body 
with care, with fidelity, with wisdom. And uh, we don't talk so much about it, but wise action, just intuitive wisdom, ways of living. We don't talk about it because it's hard to to codify. Um, But it's part of, I feel, the fruit of practice is where we are, we've, we've learned our body well and it informs our speech, thought, action. And sometimes practitioners have this sense of that like, well, meditation teachers are just living their meditation instructions. You know, that I'm like there, like living my life and having an itch and like, having equanimity with the itch rather than scratching it. But I don't do that. I'm training so that when there is an itch that I cannot scratch, I will not collapse. But I just scratch. Yeah. Very trivial, but we're learning about what actions to take and the body figures prominently in this wisdom is embodied. We develop this very deep, rich relationship with our body and its signals. And it's complex because we can't, we can't just have some blanket idea of I'm just going to listen to my body because if I were just listening to my body, I would wear a garland of donuts all the time. They would just be just wrapped just there. Just, I don't know where that image comes from. That might be Homer Simpson or I don't, I don't know, but, uh, we can't just, okay, we, we actually have to be discerning, making meaning out of our body, out of affect. We're sending mixed signals, motivations towards wholesomeness and motivations that will tend towards suffering. And we have to decode them. And we have to learn what we can trust. And we learn by paying really close attention to our body, and to the effects of following this or that. We learn by experimenting and perceiving all of this, perceiving with awareness what happens when I listen to this, what happens when I listen to that. Are these just my weird, you know, patterns that are going to cause problems Or is my body attuning to something before thought has any idea? And it can be as basic as just like teasing out sometimes like, is this pleasant or unpleasant? We have ideas of what we like, but do I actually like this? Do I want this? Is this plan going to work? If I got that, how would I feel? If I lost this, how would I feel? 
we start to get a much more nuanced kind of map of our inner life. And we learn to, um, we learn what we can trust inside us, the kind of the, the affective signals we can trust. We learn to distinguish the wholesomeness of desire from the fever dream of craving. we learn more about what we actually want, what we actually want. We learn to distinguish the kind of false alarms, all the predictions of a certain kind of threat that are false alarms from what actually is urgent. And They don't sound the same, the true alarms and the false alarms, but we have to develop our ear. Otherwise, we don't distinguish the true alarms from the false alarms, and we just can spend our life worrying, devoted to worry. A friend of mine, Megan Cowan, a teacher, gave a talk about like developing trust in oneself. And um, she said, um, one of the things she said was like, when it clicks in, when you know, you know that you know, there's not a lot of self-justification and there's not a lot of doubt. There's not a lot of, yeah, 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 this is right. This is right. This is right. Or, well, uh, that. Just like, yeah. And that kind of intuitive knowing is, I feel, developed by practice and developed by exploring the relation between bodily affect and thought, the meanings we make, the stories we tell. And so we, uh, we have this laboratory of retreat of our lives to see how this works. And we dwell in realms with less and less meaning. And we learn how to make meaning that's empowering, that leads to our welfare, that leads to the welfare of others. And then we dissolve back into less and less meaning and reemerge with new meaning. So I offer this for your uh, consideration. Please, uh, yeah, please. Consider whatever is of use and um, leave whatever is not behind. Okay, thank you.